this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 29, and we're recording on Friday? No, today is Thursday. (laughs) Whoops. Thursday, November 21st. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're the editor of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, how are you? I am good. This is our second show in in a row. I know. Last night we recorded the special holiday gift show that which, will come out next yeah, week. Yeah, which is weird because you guys, you guys will hear that next week. And we had a but great time. We did. It was a blast. And we got great questions from some of you listeners about uh, folks that you're trying to shop for to buy books for for the holidays, but you're a little stuck. Yep. Uh, so we had a really good time picking out books and geeking out together about books that we both love and then pitching each other books and pitching <laughs> you books. We cried. Uh, we did. We, we, cried. we choked we up. Cried we were both around the same time. book. We got choked up. So that's a little teaser. It's, a, it's also a super long show. It's a big, delicious bonus <laughs> holiday Hour gift and show. 40 minutes. So for your Thanksgiving weekend, uh, we got some content for you. So we had a good you time. You know, when so you hit that, that point where you can't talk to your family anymore. Yeah, right. You can talk to us, or we'll talk to you, rather. Um, uh, it, so was, it was it a was really fun. good time. And I got to spend the day uh, today. I drove from uh, Richmond down to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to go meet with some folks at Algonquin Books um, at their office there. And we got to visit a cool little bookstore called McIntyre's that's in Farrington, uh, just outside Chapel Hill. So I've had a very bookish day. Very bookish day, as, I, as all days are. That's true. I wore <laughs> pants today, though. Oh, well, can't win them all. Uh, we gotta. We have to start with a correction. Yeah, this well, show. you know. The last uh, two episodes uh, were sponsored by a book called Fangasm by Katherine Larson. Uh, that's about two professors who became super fans of the show Supernatural. And on both shows that on which we discussed Supernatural, we both said pretty confidently that Supernatural was no longer on the air. And we have been gently, uh, but very assuredly <laughs> yeah. corrected still that on the Supernatural air, is in fact still on the air. It's in its ninth season. So we are sorry, Supernatural super fans yeah. that, um, that we were wrong. There. Very polite bunch in their correcting they, of us. They were, we have been corrected more forcefully about oh, other things yeah, like, uh, um, in the past. Wherever like, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is said. And thinking that people are uh, alive who have actually oh. been dead for a while. <laughs> and uh, English language winners of the Nobel. Yeah, we got, you know, <laughs> We got some greatest uh, hits in the reverse there. But life on the internet teaches you nothing if not how to uh, oh, be forced <laughs> to admit it when you're wrong about a thing. So we we are we are freely admitting we were wrong about supernatural being yeah. off the air. It is on. We are glad you corrected us. Yeah. And so we can for all... those of you who are like, you know, I'm not going to watch that show because it's over. You can jump in on season nine. <laughs> there you go. I'm sure you won't be lost at all. Um, all right. So there's our follow up for us. And then we have a great sponsor to start with this week. Uh, Swoon Reads is back. Uh, SwoonReads.com is a revolutionary new crowdsourced romance imprint that's dedicated to publishing books that capture the intensity and the passion of teen love. Uh, we probably all know from our own experience what that means. Uh, it's run by the Macmillan's Children's Publishing Group. Uh, and what they really want us to to know, what they want you to know, is that it's a place where undiscovered writers and avid romance readers come together to make books they love happen. It's really easy for authors to submit their manuscripts online at swoonreads.com. And once you upload your manuscript, members are able to read it, to rate it, and to comment on your submission. So you can get feedback um, from romance readers who are passionate about the genre, who are experienced readers, and who care enough about romance and about helping make new romance books happen, that they're spending time hanging out on a website, reading manuscripts from undiscovered writers. Uh, so it's just so cool. Very I love cool. it when the internet does things uh, like this and when publishers try it. The manuscripts that are rated the highest by the largest number of Swoon, we- Swoon Reads readers, uh, how much wood would a woodchuck chuck, chuck uh, <laughs> <laughs> will be reviewed by the Swoon Reads staff. And then the manuscripts that are considered the most swoon worthy will be published in both print 
and ebook formats. So the real upshot here, if you are a writer who has a romance manuscript in the works or something that you're ready to submit, is that if you uh, take the risk, you put it out on this crowdsourced platform and you open yourself up to feedback from readers, um, you could end up with a publishing deal for print and ebook from Macmillan. Uh, someone is going to. Someone is going to. You. And I bet multiple people will. Multiple people will. Um, Macmillan is constantly trying new and interesting things. Their children's group publishes all sorts of fun, uh, really creative books. And, and we know that they're, they're up for experimentation and, you know, working in this new, uh, the new way that publishing works, the new landscape. So if you are a romance writer, if you've got that manuscript in your desk drawer and you just don't know what to do with it, uh, check out swoonreads.com. You can get great feedback from avid romance readers and you just might end up with a deal. So thanks to SweetenReads.com for sponsoring the show. And yes, uh, if, big you, if you're if you're a wannabe romance writer or a dabbler or a fan or a hobbyist or you know someone that maybe wants to be more than a hobbyist, you should check that out. I think um, and give her a shot. Yeah, and if you do, let us know. Yeah, let us know at how BookRiot.com. Um, this is I guess this is follow up. Uh, we've been tracking the um, post Goodreads Amazon merger developments mm-hmm. um, and. The most recent is that um, Goodreads got built into the Kindle Fire, um, and it's not just a Goodreads app. It's actually built into the reading um, app on the Kindle Fire where if you highlight a quote um, in whatever you're reading, it gives you a choice to share it right then on Goodreads. You can see what your friends are reading right there in the reading app. Um, you can rate the book right there. You can chart your progress, um, which a lot of people like to do mm-hmm. in Goodreads right there. Um, and you can mark things as to be read or finished right there in the app. So this is something we've been anticipating. It looks like it's been a, it's a pretty gentle touch um, yeah, here. It, it looks good. Um, what it do you think seems like a pretty smooth integration. Um, I, I am a you know an avid ebook reader, but I'm also very easily distractible. So I'm resistant to having a, a social networking thing pop up inside the ebook. Um, that I'm reading as I'm reading it, I, I, I want to be able to mark stuff and have it just be marked for me. Um, but I think if you're if you're an avid Goodreads user and you're already frequently sharing quotes from your current reading on Goodreads, or you're getting recommendations from your friends, or you like to track, you know, what percentage of the book you've completed and share that, um, that this integration is great because it eliminates a step for you. Yep. You don't have to like cut and paste the quote from the Kindle book over into the Goodreads app. You can open up Goodreads from within the book itself. Um, so it's, this makes sense to me. I think it's really smooth. I'm sure there's a way to opt out of it if it's a thing you're not interested in doing. Yeah, I don't think like, you have They're not going to like force you to share your notes no. publicly. Um, yeah, and so it's, that's it's, interesting. Um, yeah, I've been sc- sort of scrolling through um, the link that we'll drop into the show notes, which will be at bookriot.com slash podcast um, is a blog post that the Goodreads uh, folks use to announce this update and has 82 comments. Most of them are um, thoughtful. Some of them, you know, have some feedback, um, but 82 comments is pretty low for uh, for a blog post at Goodreads, given the huge size of that community. So if, if folks over there were really upset about it, we would know. Yeah, we <laughs> certainly on, would. Based on the volume of comments alone, but the internet did not explode over this. I'm happy to report. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, the, actually, I found the most interesting thing about this wasn't actually about the the app. It's they they included a picture of the the Goodreads on Kindle Fire team over there at Amazon. A lot of dudes over well, there. Well, not only that, just I mean, there's that, um, but there are 17 people. Yeah, which tells you um, something about Amazon's commitment to using Goodreads in a variety of ways because they're throwing 17 people. Um, at Goodreads on the Kindle Fire team, which is not a small number of of people. That's not a small budget. Um, it also gives you a sense of what good. One of the things Goodreads got from joining Amazon was all of that development money. Um, mm-hmm. Not only did they get a big um, pile of cash, one hundred fifty million dollars, it was, I think. I think so. Um, but also access to resources um, and engineering and development talent um, and staffing that, you know, would have been difficult for them to staff up on their own. So um, that's another sort of secondary indicator Mm -hmm. of how serious this um, really is. And it wasn't just a throwaway. And, you know, we knew it wasn't a throwaway, but 
this is active development. Yeah, um, there was a lot, of, part. a lot of talk and speculation. And, um, and I, you know, for one, also believed that one of the big things Amazon was doing when they purchased Goodreads was acquiring all that user data. Yeah. But it's really interesting, and I think it's encouraging that uh, – this isn't just about data that Amazon is enabling Goodreads through, you know, funding and development money and staff and time, uh, all that good stuff. They're, they're enabling Goodreads to improve their product um, yeah. and to offer new things, at least. Whether you think it's an improvement or not, they're trying new stuff. Uh, it's only on the Kindle Fire right now, but they did note that they're working hard to improve Goodreads on all devices, on the web, on tablets, on mobile. So um, I think this will be fun and interesting to watch what happens and how Goodreads users start to use Goodreads differently if you're able to update your Goodreads account from um, from within any book that you're reading on any Amazon app on any device, yeah. eventually. Um, people love their Goodreads, man, and I think they'll appreciate not having that extra step there. Yep, I think so. Um, so that's new. If you've got a Kindle Fire or you're thinking about getting one or giving one um, and you're a, a Goodreads power user, that's a pretty attractive uh, feature here. Okay, so the big news this week, National Book Awards were... Uh, awarded last night. They were. Uh, here in New York City at the Cipriani downtown. Um, the internet is now filled with uh, GIFs and videos of booksellers dancing. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to see some mad awkwardness, you are free to look for that as well. <laughs> there ain't no awkward, like, book people dancing yeah, dance, awkward. Yeah, so I'm sure you have a good time. Rumor is that George Saunders was dancing with his wife with a stack of books in his hands, um, which I would have liked to have seen. Seriously? That's, that's the rumor. I miss that's that the rumor. rumor. I, I like know. that one. Um, so, uh, the fiction winner, the good Lord bird by James McBride, um, which was really fairly or not in terms of public perception, the underdog. Um, and we both put down our guesses a yeah, couple we episodes did. back. We did. I believe you came down for Jhumpa Lahiri and the Lowlands. I think, I think so. Or 10th of December. One of those two I picked. I'm not sure. I remember my guess was 10th of December because it was declared at the beginning of the year by the New York Times to be the best book you would read all right. year. Yep. Um, and The Good Lord Bird is uh, a novel by James McBride um, from Riverhead Books. Um, and I, I've heard of the book. And when it the, was announced that it was a finalist, I did some reading about it. And I immediately went on to my Someday Maybe um, cloud of ideas of what to read. Um, did you just, you, you just dropped a getting things done reference. Yeah, that's what it is. It's <laughs> that much into my consciousness, uh, someday maybe. Um, and I'm not surprised that it won in hindsight. Uh, I think, I think probably, um, Pynchon was too weird. Mm. Uh, 10th of December short stories tend not to do very well. Um, both and both the Lowland and the flamethrowers had some trouble. I mean, you know, we could get into this a little bit. Lowland has some structural troubles, trouble, and the flamethrowers didn't really have a strong enough hook, I don't think, uh, all things considered. Um, but the good Lord Bird has a strong hook, a really strong narrator, narrative voice. Um, this this kid named Little Onion who falls in with John Brown's men and follows them on their misadventures. I actually wrote a little something about good Lord Bird for a post tomorrow, and I described it as Mark Twain, think the Dauphin scenes, of sort of zany weirdness crossed with Vonnegut's um, mm. historical rompy adventure through time, but a little cracked and askew. Um, but this is through, um, you know, following a band of militant abolitionists uh, through the country uh, as they do a whole bunch of, of stuff, um, but a little bit fantastical. Um, and, you know, all the reviews have been great. It did get a New York Times cover review, I believe. I at least got a New York Times review, so it, you know, can't be that far under the radar. Um, it's also one of the more recently published ones yeah, where, where 10th of right. December has been out. Since January. And, yeah, since since early, early in the, the year. Flamethrowers, I think, came out in April. Lowland mm -hmm. came out October the 7th. Lowland came out, yeah, in October. And Bleeding um, Edge the, came out in September, I believe. Right. It's the So it's the newest one yep. and possibly more you know, more front of mind, at least, or salient for those national yeah. book folks as they're reading. I wonder, um, since we talked a couple of weeks ago about the interview that uh, Ed McCracken did for Book Riot mm -hmm. with one of the Booker Prize judges, I wonder how it works for the National Book Award judges. If Are they reading and rereading and then re-rereading You know, I don't know the answer. I've looked this up before, um, but I, I don't remember. I have to, I have to admit. Um, I also worth saying that James McBride is black. So that's always something I pay attention to um, is the diversity of winners. National Book Award has historically been um, 
I think a little more diverse than some of the other awards. That's just off the top of my head. Um, mm-hmm. I should look at that again. Um, but a, a strong entry there. It's been a it's been a strong couple years for African American fiction. Actually, my favorite novel of this year, Americana, uh, um, by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, um, is up there. Um, and we had um, guess Salvage the Bones won two years ago the National right. Book Award. Um, Dean Amengestu is out there. Victor Lavalla, Terry Jones, um, hasn't really been talked about, but um, a nice, uh, robust crop of um, black writers doing interesting stuff. Um, and this is a new author to me. I believe this is the first full-length novel for adults. There's a children's book. Um, mm. He was a journalist for a long time, too. And he's he's most well-known for uh, The Color of Water, which is um, about his mother. Yeah, right, a memoir. Um, mm. So I don't know if you'd call this a, an entree onto the literary scene because he has some other books, but in terms of fiction, it certainly is. So that's Not exciting, a bad way to start. <laughs> exciting development. It's all down here from here, Mr. McBride. Yeah, I, um, I love the, the National Book Award winners. I wouldn't say they're are, are the nominees. They're not necessarily under the radar, but these are the nominees for the National Book Award are not usually the um, like the huge the huge 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 big name. Well, what did that have been? That, Tart this year? Like what was left uh, yeah, off that Dunn you would have expected? Like like the, uh, the Lethem book was a bit of an under. Sure, or like Karen well, Russell is going to get oh, nominated for a Pulitzer, right. but not a National Book Award. It's always like truly literary fiction, yeah. um, where they're real. They're going. I think they're really striving for, um, like, what is the like the most masterful work being done mm-hmm. um, in American fiction, not just um, masterful and commercially appealing. Yeah. Um, and the nice thing is that hopefully these authors will get will get a little bump uh the bookstore that i was in today had their gorgeous copies of the good lord bird which looks damn fine and hardcover someone um, was saying that they predicted based on the cover alone that it would win i think it was <laughs> i think it was pete mendelson maybe um who's a um a well-known designer i think at random house is where he uh, interesting yeah i find the 10th of december cover very appealing oh really i think that one's well. kind of Nothing. It's pretty in hardcover. Yeah, the lowland is nothing. Yeah. Really, I mean, it's just script. Bleeding Edge is really nothing. That's a sort of classic, just big words. I think the mm-hmm. flamethrower one is really cool. Yeah, it's really intriguing. But it, I don't know what it has to do with the book. If I, remember. I mean, I've and, read that, so. And so now I guess in publishing, what we'll do is sit and wait a month or so to yeah. see then when the like the expose article comes out about whether or not there is a National Book Award bump. Yeah. Uh, you know, the there's always a lot of talk in literary awards season this time of year about like what good are literary awards and um, who yeah. do they serve? What purpose? Uh, what purpose is there? And then there's inevitably somebody who counts up, you know, um, like the book scan, yep. the Nielsen book scan numbers from before and after the National Book Award and then reports like, well, the the winner only sold a thousand copies the right. week after the award was announced. And that's not much of a bump. Like that's no. a good, that's a decent week, but a, a bump it is not. But I think um, there's a long tail to those two. Like people are going to read those. I mean, it might be, a, it might be a 200 copy a week situation for the next 10 years which makes well, a difference like james mcbride is probably not going to have any trouble selling his second well, novel that's true that's a very good point um the national book award is it comes with a ten thousand dollar check and a nice little wood trophy as well so the nonfiction winner um was the unwinding um by george packer which is something i've paid attention to um and the hook isn't super strong i have to admit um it's about the the subtitle is the inner history of the new america but it's really about, you know, the, the blurb, I think, is a nation in crisis. Um, the retelling of American history from 1978 to 2012, a set of variations on themes without the support of an overarching narrative. So hmm. it's, it's a cross between, it's, non, it's not narrative nonfiction like we tend to get, um, but it's more of a overview. Um, what it sounds like to me is it's kind of like, you remember those um, William Heast, uh, what, what's that guy's name? Oh, I'm... Heat Moon, like, um, uh, golly. <laughs> Today, Jeff no, makes any, sounds. Yeah, anyway, anyway, I, I've forgotten, but it's, it's more, it's more impressionistic. They tell, uh. he tells stories, um, about, about a jump, people from a, several different walks of life whose way of life has unraveled in the last several decades. So it's uplifting. 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know. So it's supposed to be really great. It doesn't sound like something I'm going to get to yeah, anytime you know, soon, well, I have to it admit. Didn't, it didn't win because of its cover, man. No, 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 um, no. I was really pulling here for Going Clear by Lawrence Wright. Oh, which, right. Uh, yeah. the now that does is, have a good hook. It has a great hook. Uh, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief. It came out early in the year. Uh, it's freshly out in paperback. Um, I just read it last month, and... It's super fascinating. I mean, granted, one of the things that I can't resist in a book is a like religious expose. Um, but there's this added piece here because Scientology is uh, traditionally incredibly litigious and intimidating yeah. uh, to anyone who criticizes them publicly, uh, to anyone who tries to expose Scientology's secret documents. And Lawrence Wright, uh, who is a journalist, spent years getting interviews with the higher ups, digging through uh, all kinds of documents, really getting access uh, to, to mm -hmm. pieces of Scientology, uh, pieces of Scientology's history uh, that no one else had ever had access to. Um, and there's a ton about like, Holly, uh, you know, Tom Cruise and John Travolta and the function dishy, that Scientology shows. Yeah, there's, there's some dishy stuff, but there's also some really fascinating stuff. Uh, and there's some fascinating mastermindy stuff like for for as crazy as l ron hubbard can seem throughout this book and some of the things that he put forth as truth and some of the actions that he took and the actions that he got his followers to take that uh, are straight up evil mm -hmm. at, at times he was also incredibly smart and must have been very persuasive and charismatic to get people to follow him. Well, and that's to be always been the rumor is that he had things. that saying that cult leaders have, right? Yeah. I mean, to be a cult leader, you, uh, in any kind of successful way, you've got to have that thing. You got to right? have serious swag to start a cult. He, he must've had the swag and, uh, Lawrence Wright got access to people who had never spoken to journalists before and got them. He, this, he must be an incredible interviewer. Mm. Um, the book, maybe was a little a swag himself. Maybe so, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, it takes swag to get swag. Way. It does. Uh, I thought going clear was really remarkable, not just for like how much information is there, but for the giant risk that Lawrence Wright was taking. Like it, it's not exaggerating to say that his life was at risk um, in publishing mm. that book. And that, you know, that's, that's some swag right there. So anyway, uh, the other, the other finalists there on um, the book of ages, the life and opinions of Jane Franklin by Jill Lepore, um, Hitler's furies, German women in the Nazi killing fields by Wendy Lauer, and Alan Taylor's the internal the internal enemy slavery and war in Virginia, and then as you said, Lawrence Wright going clear Scientology Hollywood and the prison of belief. Um, and then for poetry, boy, I know nothing about any of these, and I even know less about how to say the winner's name. Mary Sibist <laughs> uh, S Z Y Sibist Sibist Shibist. I don't know. It's like Mike Shashevsky, <laughs> the, the Duke coach. It doesn't. It could be something completely different. Um, and the, the title of the collection is Incarnadine um, from Grey Wolf Press. Which uh, I think is, the, like, that's the piece that I would like to talk about, um, because I also don't know anything about these yeah. poetry collections. But it's lovely and wonderful to see Grey Wolf, which is a small, oh, non yeah, it's a nonprofit press in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. um, they do great work and um, consistently um, publish poets. They publish great literary fiction and wonderful short story collections. Um, awesome to see a small publisher um, have a book that gets recognized by this kind of award. Um, like they could probably, they probably will see a bump that will benefit them in a significant way. Um, the, from the poetry community, I guess a bump is all relative. Yeah. I was going to say, um, I don't, I don't know. Nobody's that. making a living publishing poetry. No, probably not. Um, unfortunately. So those are the national book awards, um, that come, that brings to the end, the, um, award season, the award year, mm -hmm. um, no runaway winners, no one won multiple, um, which is pretty typical, but some, when someone does it, um, it makes a story. Um, and I think we're going to have our end of the year awards, our podcast year, the end awards. Um, I don't know if we'll record it early or not, but we'll release that uh, as a show between Christmas and New Year's and it'll be a little goofy and fun and serious too, but yeah, little book stuff, little, little publishing, little newsy stuff, a uh, little author stuff. Um, so baddest okay. bad job, old guys. All right, let's get into our bread and butter, which is weird book news. Weird book. There's some, there's good weird book. Yeah, there movie. is some nice weird stuff. So you want to take this, this next one? The good people of Italy are about to be able to watch a reality show about 
writing. There you go. <laughs> um, you know, I have to confess, I'm pretty excited that this exists <laughs> and um, a little bit jealous that I won't have access to it. Uh, but Italy is getting a series called Masterpiece uh, that is about people trying to get book deals, essentially. Yep. I would watch <laughs> this if it weren't in Italian. <laughs> right. I want to uh, see this. Yeah. What happens when writing, which is a solitary activity, becomes a broadcast spectacle? Uh, aspiring authors will vie at literary challenges until one of them wins a major book, de book deal. Uh, and so, I mean, so that's those the stakes are high. Yeah. Uh, maybe they'll do some Lucha Libre stuff like we talked about. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> what the challenge We have to pay attention to this because I need to know what the challenges are. Right. Yeah. I've been thinking about this. I'm, uh, I have shameful TV habits and ah. uh, well, I, I, am not actually, they're not shameful because I am not ashamed of my TV habits. I don't believe in guilty pleasures. Uh, but I watch the voice. I love the voice. I even love Adam Levine on the voice. Uh, and I've been thinking every week watching the voice, how would this work I if these know. people were writers instead of, of singers. Write a like, sonnet in 12 minutes. We'll, we'll be back. So, right. Like every week they try, the coaches are trying to get each singer to like, to show some different part of their talent or some different part of what they can do with uh, vocally to the audience in <laughs> hopes that then more pieces, more people in the audience will appreciate them and will vote for them. So I guess it would be like, write a, um, describe a pair of hands. I don't know. Yeah, I, weird, weird, weird stuff. Right, or, I have no like idea. write a sex scene. Like you could, Weed out a lot of yeah. people that way. <laughs> Almost everybody, as it <laughs> turns could, out. Yeah, most people pretty awful at that. Um, it would be. It's going to be interesting to see. I wonder. I if hope we'll... it's a huge hit. So maybe we'll get one over here. Yeah. A huge Italian hit that we bring over. Maybe Simon Cowell will bring it over. It um, would be. It would be really fun to watch. Like, do all of the writers have to live in a house together, like the real world, and deal oh, with God. each other in between writing challenges? Yeah, and what are they even going to do? It's just like footage of people sitting at their typewriter, <laughs> smoking. Yeah, on smoking. Their, like, their confessional. <laughs> there's a going tally. You could have like an office pool about how many pots of coffee they get <laughs> yeah. through. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to watch that. A couple other short uh, TV um, book news things. So. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's vampire mystery book trilogy, The Strain, got a 13-episode order from FX Channel. So there's going to be at least one full season of it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know anything about this book, but the vampire outbreak mystery, I, you can probably guess what that's going to be like. <laughs> um, I listened to it on audiobooks several oh, you years did? ago. Okay. I really liked it. Um, I didn't think the second two books in the trilogy were as strong, but you, there's some good mileage to be made out of the first book alone. Um, I think it'll be sort of like the walking dead. Um, the, the opening scene of the book, a plane lands at JFK and the power goes out and nothing happens. Like no one gets off the plane. And so they finally send out officials from oh. the airport and everybody, these aren't spoilers cause it's like the first five pages. Everybody on the plane is dead. Uh, and many of them have these little slits in their throats. Uh, mm. And these, so these are like modern sort of uh, hybrid vampires that don't go after people with fangs, but they have these weird like stinger things that sort of come out from their mouths and they slit people's throats open. Um, and they infect, you know, you get a like a viral infection. So there's a, a giant outbreak sort of like the zombie thing that happens in the walking dead. And then you've got this very small group of people. Like there's one survivor from this plane crash. Um, there's a casket in the hold in the cargo hold of the plane that is carrying, you guessed it, a vampire. There you go. <laughs> uh, and so his followers that have like worked to secretly bring him to America are toiling away to bring the master back. So there are a couple different narrative lines to follow and like mm -hmm. a, a group of, um, you know, moxie filled survivors who are out to, to save the rest of the world from this outbreak. I think this would be a lot of fun to watch. I can't watch this. No, no way. No, I can't do scary, gory crap. Can't do it. Um, so the other, the other bit of series news is that The Family Fang by Kevin Wilson is going to be a movie starring cool. Nicole Kidman and Jason Bateman in the lead roles. I think you've read this. Have you not? I have. Yeah, I have. Um, I didn't, but I know I, I heard a lot about it. And 
It sounds like it's going to be a fun movie. Um, so the the two main characters are a, a husband and wife, and they have a couple of kids, and they're performance artists, right? That's the mm-hmm. setup. And like kind um, of really kooky performance, really kooky, artists. but as opposed to the really straight laced <laughs> performance artists. Uh, and they come back, and they're sort of settling down after a, a long life of touring and doing stuff. And it's them coming to settle down, right? Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. So um, I'm wondering. There's the couple, and then the couple have kids, right. and most of the book centers around the children that, throughout their growing up, were sort of subjected against their will. The props uh, to, in their as right as props in their parents' weird performance art, and now they're pretty upset about what their childhood was like, and their parents are claiming to go into retirement, but yeah. then their parents disappear. Oh. And the kids are trying to figure out like if they should actually be involved in the search for their parents or if um, if their parents seeming to be gone and it's possibly dead. Right. It's just another stunt mm. that they're getting pulled into that like this is the only thing that their parents could think of to loop them back into the performance art after they both um, chose not to be a part of it. And like their, you know, their personal lives are sort of a wreck. And so they've come back to the family home to make sense of that and also to figure out what has happened to their parents. So I'm hoping I'm really hoping Jason Bateman is going to be like the upset child in this situation. Oh, they're older. I didn't. I didn't get yeah, that. Right, I didn't right, get right, the yeah, kids the, are the older. The kids are okay. grown. Um, oh. So I would guess Jason Bateman and Nicole Kidman are going to be the grown children. Um, the, I see. Bill Murray should play their dad. I think. Oh, I see. So it's kind of like uh, Royal Tenenbaum with yeah. uh, with um, uh, Ben Stiller and uh, Wilson and uh, yeah, a little bit. Man, I can't West remember. Like, this, would, yeah. this does have a great. Uh, now that you're mentioning that, there is a great like Wes Anderson sort of feel. Okay, to the story. I'm in. I'm into yeah. this. I'm watching this. Did it say who the director was? That matters. Jason Bateman's going to star and direct. Oh, okay. Well, that that should be pretty good. That's yeah. Gonna be I good. think I'll I'll watch it. Um, all right. So that's our weird. TV that's our book weird TV news. stuff. Um, excited for Family Fang. Not interested in vampires for me. I'll uh, watch those. <laughs> Uh, this happened actually a couple weeks ago. Um, this story came out that someone found um, uh, an 1898 list of the 100 greatest novels ever written. So this was a 100 greatest novels um, list, like something like we'd write on the site today or you know, and people, people would do. And people immediately proceeded to argue on the 1898 version of Facebook about how the list was wrong. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so it was really interesting for a lot of reasons, um, but most interestingly, you know, how things have changed and what hasn't changed, mm-hmm. um, and that someone was actually thinking about this. So you haven't looked at this. Um, I haven't. So why don't you, let's see, why don't you tell me a couple of books you might expect and I'll sort of try to find where they are. I'm so bad at knowing when things were published. Okay. Okay. Fair uh, enough. <laughs> so pre-1898. Pre-1898. Um, was that so? You've got all of Dickens there. You've got all of Twain there. You've got all of Austin there. Was that like? Uh, was the Scarlet Letter out yet? Yes, it was. It was all indeed. Right. I'm going to um, guess the Scarlet Letter. What about? Oh, the um, guys are Brit. I should say that the guy who oh, did okay, it is a Brit. Okay, okay. But the Scarlet Letter was number sixty-five, and it came out in eighteen fifty. Is it all books or just novels? Uh, just it's novels, just novels. Just novels. Um. Oh, Jane Austen has to be on there. She is. Um, her highest ranked book is, and there's only one on there, is Pride and Prejudice at number 22. Hmm. I'm racking my brain for like yeah. high school, junior English. Well, let's, <laughs> um, let me just see. Where's uh, Jekyll and Hyde? Our boy Charles Dickens has um, only one. Okay. David Copperfield at number 63. So that's someone whose stock has really risen in the 20th century, it seems right. to me. Right. Okay, so if Jane Austen is on the list, yeah. uh, the Brontes, I Bronte, would guess. Bronte, yeah. Um, Wuthering Heights is 61. Okay. Um, so that came out in uh, 1847. Um, Wuthering Heights. The Three Musketeers? Oh, and sorry, Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights are 60 and 61. Okay. Um, so back to back. All right. Is the Three Musketeers it is on the number list? number 55, Alexandre Dumas. 
1845. Hey there. Um, let's see. Okay, so that's you. You got there. Those are in the middle of the pack, right? So we yeah, haven't had anything yeah, okay. crack the top so twenty. I haven't cracked the top twenty. Um, let's see if there's anything. Here's here's what's shocking is that oh, oh go for Candide. It. Candide number nine. There you go. Yes. 1756. Number one, the Don himself, Don Quixote, 1604. Uh, um, let me give you the top ten because man. Uh, the Holy War, 1682, by John Bunyan. Good gravy. Um, more famous now, really, for Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. Um, Gil Blas, 1750, by Alain René Lesage. Never heard of it. Nope. Number four, Robinson Crusoe, by Daniel Defoe, 1719. Oh, yeah, Gulliver Travels, 1726, Jonathan Swift. Man, I didn't realize Gulliver's Travels was that old. That old, right? Uh, Roderick Random, by Tobias Smollett, from 1748. Clarissa by Samuel Richardson, one of the early influential novels in English, at least, 1749. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding, mm-hmm. 1749. Candide, uh, 1756, uh, Voltaire. Number 10, Rasselas by Samuel Johnson mm-hmm. in 1759. Then I'm just going to read names. Horace Walpole, Oliver Goldsmith, Claire Reed, Fanny Burney, William Beckford, Anne Radcliffe, William Gold- Godwin, Lady Morgan, Madame de Stahl, Jane Porter, Maria Edgeworth, and then Jane Austen. So there's a lot of names that may not be familiar to folks. I uh, spent a lot of time in school studying literature, and I can tell you that of the 100, <laughs> I've read 22 of them, which oh, wow. is not a lot considering that uh, I've done a lot of graduate work in English. Um, understatement. Yeah, understatement. So uh, I think is this that, is interesting. Is Robert Louis Stevenson on there? It must be. Um, yeah, the master of Ballantrae. Really? Really, 98 was the only one on there. Interesting. Um, oh, there's Uncle Tom's Cabin at 67. Yep. Let's okay. see. I don't think there's any Twain. Wilkie Collins no at number Twain. 80 with The Woman in White. No Twain. I was going to guess Victor Hugo. Les Mis is at 85. Yeah. Um, no Melville, or at least um, there is a Melville, oh, yeah, but it's not Herman. Some hmm. G.W. White Melville. Um, I'm trying to think of what else we would be interested in here. Um I don't see I don't see Jekyll and Hyde. Oh yeah, uh, that's interesting. Or uh, I'm stuck way back at how Jonathan Swift has held up. Yeah, Frankenstein <laughs> number twenty four. Okay, so that was on there. Mary Shelley, um, Kenilworth by Sylvester Scott. Boy, that's a deep cut. So these lists, like, here's a list that's more than a hundred years old of what they thought were the hundred greatest novels. Yeah. Then sort of automatically brings up the question. Of a hundred years from now, what are we going to be listing? A hundred years from now, well, like some of these will endure. You know, Don Quixote will yeah, probably I mean, endure. I mean, I don't know if it's surprising how many of them you at least know or not. Um, yeah, I mean, Vanity Fair, Thackeray, fifty nine. Um, but you got to, you have, like, we'll have to add. There will be Vonnegut. There would be Morrison. Yeah, right. I mean, really, I mean, the novel had only been around since sixteen oh four, only three hundred years old. And really, you know, Cervantes was so far ahead of the game that you don't see other titles really appearing for another 100 years or more. Um, so really, it's about 150 years worth of history. Wow. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, that's really interesting to think about. Um, but for those of you who like classics, um, I bet you're going to find some new names to, to check out there. Yeah, I the good did. news about almost everything on this They're list free. is that it's in the public domain yeah, the public now. Domain, so you, you can get those as e-books. Yeah, I bet if you did a little Googling between like Project Gutenberg and Google e-books and who yep. knows what else, you could pretty much read this whole list for free. That's, that's right. That's right. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, I would like for someone to do that and write a blog about oh, it, Oh, yes. I would like to do that too and send it to us. We will link to you and talk about you and say nice things about you. <laughs> Um, okay, here's just another quick one. Um, I thought this was interesting because there's a whole, it seems like we're in a, a particularly um, fertile time for people to read a book about life habits or their behavior and then try to change themselves, right? Do mm-hmm. something differently. Um, and this is a study about people who went vegetarian after reading a life-changing vegetarian book, and they tend to get back on the meat within a year. <laughs> <laughs> You couldn't help yourself. Too I long of a day. I could hear the giggle in your yeah, voice yeah, as exactly. you said. I had a you, definitely you a little about, more than a smirk happening there. You got about halfway through that phrase. Yeah, I was trying to hold yourself. it together. <laughs> um, so let's see. Uh, I don't know that we get a hard stat 
here. Um, but basically, um, the result, let's see. Uh, they surveyed more than 500 students in two groups. Yeah. Um, and this is classic psychology research being conducted on undergraduate students. <laughs> yeah, they got 10 bucks to fill out for a survey. Free. That is how most psychology research is done. Uh, yeah, I don't see hard numbers about um, how many people reverted uh, back, but it, it, it basically calls it a fleeting flirtation yeah. with strict values. Um, you know, that's interesting. My background before I saw the light and became a book person right. uh, is in psychology. And we, we talk in those circles about how the most difficult thing to do is to change someone's behavior. Um, first you try to change their attitudes and then to change their beliefs. But really the most difficult thing to do long-term is to change someone's behavior in a consistent way. And that ultimately the reason people change their behaviors is that their minds have changed, but their behaviors haven't. And so they have cognitive mm. dissonance between the thing mm -hmm. that they think is right and the way that they're acting. And that's really uncomfortable for humans. We don't like it. Um, when we believe that we should be doing one thing, but then we are actively doing another thing. Yeah, I think we um, call so that we... guilt. I think we have that <laughs> word for that. We right. have heard of it. Right. It's like religion is uh, built on. Right. So we either change our minds back so that we can keep doing the thing that we have been doing and yep. not have to change our, or we change our behavior to bring it in line with our attitudes. But to get people to make a long-term behavioral change is very difficult. Um, I worked with a, a researcher in graduate school who was working on smoking cessation and people have been trying to quit smoking for as long as smoking has been a thing that people do. Um, and, and we still haven't really cracked the no. right way to get people to quit and to quit long-term and successfully and without a lot of pain um, or to get them to do it uh, without a lot of resistance to the idea of doing it. So I'm not surprised that something as central to our lives as what we eat is not a lasting change yeah. after I was a After little a surprised lifetime. too. So they were assigned to read Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan, which is kind of the white hot center of this particular mm -hmm. phenomenon. And I, it doesn't, it's not clear from the story here whether or not they were asked to read it as part of the study or they had just read it anyway, because that could affect it too, right? Where yeah. if they didn't read it sort of organically and were sort of told to read it or encouraged to read it um, from an external source, I wonder if that must have some effect. Sure, yeah, it's a, that's a selection to, um, bias thing. Yeah. Um, so women were slightly more likely to keep up their change in habits than men. Um, so anyway, I, I think that's I think that's interesting to think yeah, about it, too. It is. I think smaller habits are easier to change. Yeah. Um, well, last this is the year, New Year's resolution phenomenon, right? Right. I mean, it's the same same idea. Like right, you want to yeah. be better, or at least what you think is better, and. You know, if you really thought it were, if you, it was really that easy, you would have already done it. I mean, that's kind of the classic uh, dilemma. It's trying to make a huge change all at once, which frankly, changing your diet so radically is a giant change to that's try a, to keep up. Right. Imagine, time. you know, the late night bacon cravings and how yeah, right. it would take you to, to crack under that. Um, last year I read, I think maybe you read it too, The Power of yeah, Habit by, by Charles, Charles Duhigg. Yeah. Um, and we're both, we're both sort of wonks about mm -hmm. like productivity, yep. habit forming uh, books, that sort of thing. But he really emphasizes that the best and like the best way to try to make a long lasting habit change is to change small habits, but yep. to identify like the most crucial part of that. It's like, if you want to break your habit of going to get coffee every afternoon at three o'clock, you first have to figure out, are you getting coffee because you're tired or right. are you getting coffee? You want to because... stretch your legs or you want to go talk right. to somebody. On right. The way you there, want a little social interaction. Yeah. And so talking to the people at the coffee shop gives you that social boost. Like what's the need you're actually trying to meet with your coffee run. And then how can you meet that need in a different way than going to get coffee? Maybe you take a 20 minute power nap instead. If you're tired at three o'clock every day. Um, so changing, like change up your whole diet. And, and now I'm going to drop just completely anecdotal evidence because mm -hmm. um, that's a valid thing. Best that people anecdata do. is the best. <laughs> the only people that I know who are really committed uh, and have been committed in a long term uh, to a vegetarian diet or to veganism or uh, to any sort of ideologically guided dietary choice, not one that um, is a restriction because of health reasons, are people who committed to it early in life. Yep. Uh, you know, who like, well, my, my darling gross. Michelle, who went vegetarian when she was an uh, early teen mm -hmm. um, and has kept it up ever since. So really it's establishing a lifelong habit. And when you're still forming your 
your life habits, I would think it would be a much easier in those right, when you haven't times. yet gotten the late night bacon. Cream. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Just yeah. Don't know. Uh, I have a good friend whose whose father worked in uh, in fast food as an sort of administrative executive person. And she had a weird experience with the chicken McNugget when she was seven mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, has not eaten meat since, but she's now 34. Uh, so those kinds of long lasting, like that's purely uh, anecdotal, but I'm, I am interested in, in how long just in, and in general, like how effectively do people change their habits after they read a book that is intended to open their eyes to something else? Um, yeah, the few, yeah, the few books that I chalk up as life changing or more life changing as like they shifted the way that I viewed a thing, um, or, well, uh, the ones for me, yeah. like we just talked about getting things done, is things right. that help me solve a problem that mm-hmm. I have. Whereas going vegetarian isn't necessarily solving a problem. It's, you know, a new belief, but it's unless you consider it a problem that you're trying to fix, maybe there's even there's another um, disincentive to keep it up, right? I'm yeah, incentivized also... to keep up my productivity system because if I don't, my life falls apart. Yeah. Um, where the disincentive to go stay off meat is more of a moral or intellectual one. And it's out of sight. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's easy to fall off the wagon, right? You know, it's, it doesn't take much to, to get off there. So that's interesting, too. Okay, let's do more stats. Um, this is a surprising one. So um, latest numbers from the American Association of American Publishers, the American Association of American Publishers, the Association <laughs> of American Publishers uh, released their um, year-to-date stats about what's selling. And I'm surprised, and I think you are too, to see mm-hmm. that hardcover book sales in the U.S. are up over 10% through the first eight months of 2013. At the same time, adult ebook sales are up only 4.8%. And all U.S. ebook sales, including children's religious books, are down about 5%. Hmm. So the two things that are, that are hard to reconcile is the huge growth in hardcover sales and the dip in ebook sales, because the narrative of the last three to five years has been decreasing print sales um, and increasing ebook sales. So this is one time period, so it could be an anomaly. Um, one thing that could be happening is we're coming off the really amazing highs in ebook sales driven by Fifty Shades of Grey and The Hunger Games and um, the uh, Divergent series in particular. Um, yeah. And the Allegiant, the last in the um, Divergent series came out in August, which covers this. And a lot of people were buying that in hardcover. So I don't know if that's anything to do with it, but it sold 250,000 copies in the first week. Came out in October. And by August, I'm in October. <laughs> or maybe it was even November. At this maybe point, it was I've even lost. November. So it that like totally does not <laughs> even apply. Uh, strike that from the record, please, counselor. <laughs> anyway, so strike that out. Um, I but, correct you with love. Yeah, I know. I agree. I, I want to hear. I, wanna, I don't want to get it wrong if I can avoid it. Um, so... Anyway, I, I don't know what to say about that. It you has know, been I a think, very strong year for literary fiction I was just writing about. So has. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I think uh, Jeremy Greenfield, who wrote this piece, also, uh, this is at Forbes, and he also uh, writes at Digital Book World, yep. and we know him a little bit. I think Jeremy's guess here that this has to do with Fifty Shades of Grey in particular is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2011 and Those 2012... Those were all paperback and those weren't hardcovers for starters, yeah, right? Yeah, and um, in 2011 and 2012, there were a lot of people who were just getting iPads and tablets and were starting to e-read for the first time and were seeing the benefit of immediately being able to buy that book that you just heard about. And the book that they had just heard about was Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, and there's a, a particularly because there was some stigma around that title, there was some incentive to buy it digitally and to read it on a device where people couldn't see what you were reading as opposed yep. to holding uh, the the printed edition and reading them. Though I did see lots of people reading printed copies of them around in public. Well, when that was you sell that, that many, happening. some of them are going to show right, up it's in gonna public. Happen. Right? There's just um, a, a million. I think that that's probably correct i wonder also if some of it is just regression to the mean like mm-hmm. ebooks were were really big and exciting and new in 2011 and 2012 and a lot of people were discovering them for the first time and bought a lot of ebooks um and decided to test that 
out yeah. and that that's a huge spike and sort of an outlier number. And I wonder if now, um, now that we have reassured ourselves that paper books are not going anywhere um, anytime soon, the folks who really do prefer paper are maybe continuing to read right. in paper. Um, like they tested out, they went on their little fling with eBooks and they thought like, okay, this is maybe this is fine, but I prefer paper. And so they've gone back to paper and we're, we're seeing that regression back to the mean in book sales. Yeah. For, there has been a theory for hardcover around that. What might happen is those who are predisposed to try eBooks will try them. And the initial growth will flatten out um, as those people try it, and they, you know, the the print um, diehards will stay with print. I think the long term trend is it's not people like you and me and older or even five years younger. It's the people who are thirteen, fourteen, fifteen to twenty two now. Mm -hmm. um, if I look at my own students who are eighteen, they read on their iPads and Kindles and tablets and phones much more than they read in print. Um, so I think this could be a correction from a huge spike in ebook over the last couple of years, but um, it could just be one sort of correction, and then we're going to see a sort of stair stepping uh, up and down. So yeah, since you mentioned the young teenagers, I'm really interested uh, to see how that develops. I have several nieces and nephews in that age group who all have tablets yep. and they, they use them all the time, um, but they don't read on them. They still mm. prefer paper books. It's like your tablet is the thing that you use for all your other doodads yeah that Do could dads. be the case i am hip and progressive yeah and i think that's what all the the, the um swells are calling them they're calling them mm -hmm. doodads um so that's an anomaly from the story we've been hearing the other the other sort of sidebar here is that um uh sorry the whole overall u.s trade publishing is down five percent versus the same period last year and that is what I call the Fifty Shades effect because that is I did for sure the Fifty Shades. I did effect. a little study, my you know back of the envelope calculations myself last year, twenty twelve, where U.S. trade publishing was up about seven percent, um, and I looked at the numbers that were coming out of the U.K. about Fifty Shades sales, and I postulated like if it's roughly equivalent in terms of percentage to U.S. sales, that would have accounted for all of the growth um, in the U.S. trade. So I'm not surprised to see that at all. Now, and this time last year, the news was just, I think, starting to come out that every single random house employee Got was getting grand. Yeah. a $5,000 bonus. A lot of people work for random house. That's right. Yeah, thousands and of people. Every single one of them from like the lowliest mailroom clerk to the highest executive took home a $5,000 bonus that yep. was entirely due to what happened with Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, so whether you like the books or not, or you um, appreciate E.L. James as a writer or not, it's undeniable that those books had a positive effect on uh, on publishing last year, in at least in terms of sales numbers and growth numbers. Um, but we're going to see that number. We're going to see 2012 as an outlier for a while. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the other the other one I just want to pick out here is um, August was up 50 percent year over year. Huh. Which I don't know what to make about. What came out in August? Well, it was Night Film, but that, I mean, I know a bunch of people read that, but that can't be it. No, and that's a book you want to read in print, actually. Yeah, um, so I don't know. I mean, hmm. The Ocean at the End of the Lane came out in May, so it could be some some hangover from that. But I don't see, I'm looking at um, a couple of editorial best books of August, and I'm not seeing anything that really... I wonder if August is just the most heavily vacationed well, but that wouldn't account for a year over year change. Oh, that's right. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Huh. Uh, and then in July, I don't what see anything. What did you people that, do in August? What were you buying? I mean, <laughs> it doesn't, I don't see anything that really, I mean, if a Legion had come out in August, that would explain it. Cause that sold a jillion copies or something. Um, Let's hop in our time turner and make it. Yeah. Sound. That'll make that we can fit the data to our uh, theory. <laughs> that's how science works. Right. Shinsky? Yep. That's how you do it. Um, okay. So there's that. Let's go a couple more things. Let's do one more. We've got two more before our, our sponsor. So you pick which one do you see there? Hmm. Which one are you do? Let's talk about Cory Doctorow. He okay, makes me yeah, happy. The other cool. choice is for me to rant about a thing for yeah, a little bit. So let's do, do the happy we're, thing we're first. Happy. Um, so this one is Cory Doctorow who wrote a Boing Boing and he's an author in itself. Um, his most famous book is his 2008 novel, Little Brother. Writes science fiction, futurist kind of things. 
and he's a big champion of of books and libraries and bookstores and, and publishing at all. But his real hobby horse, um, more than other people's, is DRM free. Um, all of his books are DRM free. There's no copyright protection on them, um, and his audiobooks are now available DRM free, which is something people don't really talk about. Audiobooks being DRM free. Um, Audible, uh, I know, isn't DRM has DRM only. Actually, you can't even uh, post something there DRM free if you don't want to. And so he went to a site I never heard of called Downpour.com, that is an audiobook site that allows DRM free um, downloads and, and sales. And that's where all of his titles are exclusively available. And I just think this is interesting, as audiobooks are more and more important uh, in publishing. Those were up that thirty one percent twenty twelve over twenty eleven. I know. Um, and we're, you know, we're good cases of it. You and I, I know we're doing we a lot more audiobooks. So that's really interesting to think about that there might be some differentiation in um, audiobook retailing depending on some of these policies. And you know what I want? I just realized I didn't even know I wanted until I thought of this today. I want an oyster for audiobooks. Ooh, I like that. You know, it doesn't have to be streaming, front list. doesn't have to be front list. Unlimited streaming. streaming. I pay premium. Maybe Oyster or Scribd in their new subscription service could do it kind of like Netflix where you've got a couple tiers. You could have streaming only, so maybe ebook only, but you could have DVDs on top of that for a premium. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, you know, you and I, I think, would both pay $18 a month for unlimited whatever they had available in ebook and audio, right? We would. Yeah, we, we would totally would. We would pay the, the, and, and I think the thing that we've talked about that we love so much about Oyster is that your free discoverability is really easy, yep. first of all, to find new titles, but you're also free to try out books with That's no true. risk because I've already paid Oyster my nine ninety five for the month. Um, so I can open as many books as I want and read a couple of pages or even read half of them and then be like, well, not yep. so much. Um, and I haven't spent any money particularly on that book. So there's nothing to be lost by moving on. And I would love to be able to do that um, mm-hmm. with audiobooks. Um, we, you and I both listen to a lot of like nonfiction, sort of businessy, mm-hmm. um, improve, self-improvement types of, man, we are exciting. <laughs> well, I wouldn't become, I wouldn't be the over man I am today without all the self uh, But some of them, you really only need to listen to half of to get yeah, the that's right. And it would be great to be able to well, do Well, And all their audiobooks, Jen Audible, for example, they let you listen into a sample, but usually it's only a few minutes, which I don't think is telling. I I don't gain much confidence. Let me put it that way yeah. from listening to a sample. Frankly, I don't gain much confidence from reading a sample of an ebook either. Mm-hmm. Like I need to get a little bit into it. I'm a, I'm a historically bad at DNFing um, books anyway. So that's something to think about too. This was only a hook on that larger story. I'd like to see about some uh, innovation and um, fragmentation about the different kind of audiobook offerings that are out there. And that's um, a really lovely segue into our next sponsor. It is. Go for it. Oh, no, this is me. Oh, you know, whatever. This we is me. No, we, we agreed. Yeah. Uh, Random House Audio is our sponsor, and they've got this new website called tryaudiobooks.com. So what they're trying to do with audiobooks is they're basing their audiobook recommendation about the kind of listener you are. So if you're a crafter, so you spend longer amounts of time um, sitting and listening, or you're a runner, and you listen to audiobooks while you're on the treadmill or on the bike or jogging outside or while you're in the car or on the plane or on the train um, or out adventuring in a variety of different ways, they're going to give recommendations based on your activity. And not only your activity, but also how much time you have. So if it's a couple hours, you can do that. If it's a long car trip, you're going to get, uh, you know, you're going to get that big uh, Robert Cairo a biography of somebody that lasts a million years. Um, so the personal audiobook assistant recommends how based on the length of time you're looking to fill, five-hour drive. Um, and you can go to tryaudiobooks.com and browse around and see what you can find there. Um, yeah, and if you go there right now um, for holiday travel, they're offering a free, complete audiobook download of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. There you go. So if you're going to pack up the family and go on a road trip next week for Thanksgiving or um, for Hanukkah or for Christmas, and you're going to be doing a little distance and you need something that you will enjoy, but that's also appropriate for the kiddos, uh, you can take care of that for free. This is a nice, speaking of low risk, like download a free audiobook is a great low risk 
best way That's to test out. That's a heck out of a way to do it. What the experience will be like uh, for you to plug whatever your device of choice is, like into your car stereo, or to take it along while you're going on a walk in the evenings and listen. Um, I have a lot of friends who are crafting lately too, and so it's cool to see that there's like a section for crafters here on tryaudiobooks.com where mm-hmm. you can craft, and they'll recommend um, audiobooks that you might listen to while you you know work on your woodworking or while you do your cross stitch or your knitting in the evenings, um, cool options. And then through this, uh, of course the titles that they're recommending, since this is random house audio are, um, random, random house, house books. And penguin books. Yeah. Yeah. But lucky for you, uh, between them, they publish a lot of really wonderful books. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and they've got some interviews with some narrators and they've got some random house and penguin authors, um, with lists of what they've been listening to lately. Um, so you can browse around and check that out. So that's tryoutabooks.com. Thanks, Random House Audio, for sponsoring the show and for trying something new. We like that. Always, we do. We, we love like the, the trying of new things. All right, let's and do new books and let's get out of here. Yeah, speaking of new things, uh, new books. We're getting into that holiday slowdown. We like are. The last several episodes, we've been gushing about how we were in the middle of like big new awesome <laughs> That's book right. season. Uh, this we're in week, the afterglow. No. We are in the afterglow, but it, I'm, it's still glowing. I'm still glowing yeah, here. Yeah, no, there's embers for sure. We've got Let Me Off at the Top, My Classy Life and Other Musings by Ron Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> um, just in time for building your anticipation about Anchorman 2, uh, which will be an excellent choice to make in your holiday entertainment. Uh, Random House published this. It, uh, they are claiming it was actually written by Ron Burgundy. I am giving mad props to them for standing by that. Like, <laughs> it would be great to hear. From Santa whoever... is real, Rebecca. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, it would be great to hear from whoever ghost wrote this yeah. book. Um, presumably it was not Will Ferrell, but uh, I would guess from the voice. I've read little excerpts of this online because I was... Uh, I was curious, and I would guess some of the writers from uh, the Anchorman movies were involved in the crafting of the Ron Burgundy voice uh, for this novel, or for this, it's a memoir, I guess, um, not a novel, uh, by Mm -hmm. Ron Burgundy. Uh, Seems like it would be fun. I'm probably going to listen to this on audiobook. I'm not going to lie. I love me some Anchorman. Oh, you will? You'll listen to that? I think I might. Okay. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) I'll give it a shot. Anchorman, like... Will Ferrell is my channel surfing sweet spot. I will watch mm. the ballad of Ricky Bobby from any point. <laughs> like, okay. You, you're, you're just, if it comes on, you're just in. You're in. Yeah. If it's on, if it's halfway through, um, I'm stopping and watching at least 30 minutes of it. And if it's like a Saturday night, I'm probably just going to tuck in and watch the rest of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the thing I can't resist on cable. Um, And I, I, you know, Anchorman is ridiculous and silly. And um, I sort of love it for embracing the ridiculous and the silly and for not apologizing about what it is. So I'm curious. I wouldn't shell out for the hardcover. Okay. But... I would listen to this on audio, especially if Will Ferrell performed it. Uh, next week, uh, since we're going into uh, Thanksgiving and the show that you'll get from us next week is our hol- holiday gift guide and doesn't have the new releases sections, we'll do a, a, a next week new release, uh, is No Good Duke Goes Unpunished by Sarah McLean. It's the third book in her Rules of Scoundrels series. And this is uh, my favorite romance series. Uh, these are all set in, in London. They're Regency romances about lords and ladies, uh, ladies whose families are trying to match them up with respectable gentlemen. Uh, and these ladies would prefer to be with uh, roguish gentlemen who know some things. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, all of these gentlemen work together at a gambling hall. We've met uh, the first two intimately uh, in several senses of the word mm-hmm. uh, in the first two books. And uh, there's a character named Cross who owns this gambling hall and Cross's real identity will be revealed in No Good Duke Goes Unpunished. Um, I love Sarah McLean for writing um, smart romance heroines, women who are self-possessed, who uh, who know what they want, who express that to the men in the stories um, and who th- these are not, uh, you know, wallflower uh, doormat types of, of romance heroines. These women are, are sassy, which is kind of a terrible mm. word, but that's what I'm coming up with for, for right now. Um, they're really intelligent. I like the way that she approaches, um, romance writing and, and doesn't shy away from what is, what a good romance scene 
should be, but also doesn't use silly euphemisms for body parts, which I also appreciate. Uh, so that comes out next week. It's called No Good Duke Goes Unpunished. Uh, if you're looking for some romance to help you have some escapism from family holidays, you could do a mm-hmm. lot worse than some Sarah McLean. Um, well, since we're talking about books that aren't actually coming out right now, since that's what you just did. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, a book that came out a couple weeks ago that we skipped over that's going to be a big Christmas book is um, Doris Kearns Goodwin has a new book out oh, this yeah. season, The Bully Pulpit, um, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism. So it's about the, the, the Roosevelt and Taft presidencies, but it's also about the birth of the progressive muckraking journalist movement mm-hmm. um, that sort of went around at the same time. Uh, it's, you know, one of these big, meticulous expansive Goodwin books, 928 pages. So wait for a snowstorm and some insomnia yeah. and you She's can finish really it in two weeks. She's dynamic though. Oh yeah, she is. She is. So that's her next big book. Um, if you're a Goodwin in American history fan, that will be all the talk, the uh, uh, commercial nonfiction world this holiday season. All right, so that's our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can get in touch with us, podcast at bookriot.com. You can find me on Twitter at Reading Ape. You can find her, Rebecca Shinsky, at Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Uh, you can review us on iTunes if you like. We crossed the 100 rating uh, barrier the other day, but we need one more review for 50, and then we can let you go for a while until we stress out about it again. Um, we've got a little survey uh, if you'd like to help us um, identify the best kind of sponsors to bring you the most relevant interesting stuff we consider the sponsors of the show kind of part of the show and hope it's as interesting as some of the other stories we do you can find that in the show notes which is bookriot.com slash podcast you can find the links to the stories we talked about and links to the books that we talked about here as well um, I think that's and it. if you would like to receive a quarterly mailing yep. of awesome books uh, that one we week love, left. right? Uh, books that we've selected and other bookish stuff, uh, you know, accessories for your reading life, things that anybody uh, would enjoy having as part of their uh, reading activities. Uh, you can sign up for our new quarterly box. It's sort of like Birchbox for books, if you're familiar with that model, at quarterly.co slash products. You'll see Book Riot right there. You have until November 29th uh, to sign up, assuming that supplies last. Um, but we've had to finalize our product orders for this already, and we have 800 of them, and we have sold almost 700 of them Okay, already. we're getting down to it. We have. It's been great. So um, we've got a great book picked out. We have a bunch of really fun bookish items, and the author of the secret book that we can't tell you about yet hand wrote a ton of notes uh, that will give you uh, insights into that as well. So if you've been thinking about this, we've talked about it on some of the other shows, or you just want to treat yourself while you're buying your holiday gifts for other people, and you've got until November 29th to subscribe to Book Riot's first quarterly. Again, that is quarterly.co slash products. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Have a great week.